The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. For months, President Trump avoided the novel coronavirus. He did this even without taking basic steps to prevent the virus's spread, like wearing masks and staying away from large indoor crowds. But last week, that changed. Trump told the American people via tweet very early Friday morning that he had tested positive for COVID-19. Later that day, he was hospitalized at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Well, Calvin and Nicole, the president has boarded Marine One. He came out wearing a mask. The president was walking, followed by the chief of staff, Mark Meadows. And as you see... And on Monday, after he'd been administered a cocktail of steroids and therapeutic drugs, Trump left the hospital and returned to the White House. But questions about the severity of the president's condition remain. Though the president himself has tried to project the image of a president hard at work, posting videos and photos of himself clad in a full suit, repeatedly tweeting that he's feeling great, declaring himself recovering, it's hard for reporters and the public to know exactly where Trump's health stands. But how much should the public know when it comes to the health and fitness of our commander in chief? What are the responsibilities of the president and of his doctors to be transparent about his health information? And how does that transparency factor into potential moves to transfer power if a president is incapacitated? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Since Trump's diagnosis, even as the president was hospitalized, Trump administration officials made it clear that there were no plans for Vice President Pence to assume even temporary authority as president. But of course, the events of the past week have raised questions about how that process works. Who decides? What happens if a president can't consent to a transfer of power? What if his ability to govern is in question? Later in this show, I talked to law professor and expert in the 25th Amendment, Brian Kalt, to answer these questions. But first, I spoke with White House reporter David Nakamura about the president's health status and the responsibility of those around him to keep him safe. David, you've been covering the White House for a long time, predating the Trump presidency. Has Trump's hospitalization presented unique challenges when it comes to transparency? Has it been unusually difficult to figure out what's happening? Yes, absolutely. I mean, Trump started off early in his presidency, but not revealing as much as other presidents have in the past. And, you know, everything from his taxes to even his physical condition. We know that although his doctors each year have presented basics on his physical, he had a procedure last November in which he went to Walter Reed for an unknown reason. Uh, White House aides said it was to get started on his physical because of an election year. But now, given that he's been hospitalized for coronavirus, there's lots of questions here about that procedure and, of course, what has happened over the past week. And the president has been very clear that he wants to project this image of strength and that this is just a minor setback. But the doctors who briefed reporters did not answer a lot of questions that people had, including when the president's last negative test was, which was very important to know, because then we would know how far along he is in his diagnosis and potential recovery. And so in a lot of ways, the daily news conferences at Walter Reed did not answer a lot of questions and I think raised more questions than they answered. And since the president's got back to the White House, the doctors put out some small memos, but has not been available for questioning. So this is really alarming because obviously the health of the chief executive is very important, especially right now when there's so many problems with the country and an election coming up very soon. Based on what we are able to know at this point, what is the status of the president's health at the moment? 
Well, the doctors have said most recently that he himself is feeling good. That's what he's saying. And that the president has no fever over the past several days and that he has no symptoms over the past 24 hours. And so they're suggesting that he's doing well. He's taken a number of what they call antibody cocktails of various medications. Some are still sort of experimental, but doctors say they're safe and that the president seems to have responded well. And they seem to be suggesting he's on the road to recovery. They've not yet cleared him fully, even though his campaign is now talking about starting up with events, including maybe rallies next week. And he even went to the Oval Office yesterday in which he was sort of apparently taking phone calls about uh, stimulus negotiations for those who are being harmed by the coronavirus economically. It's not clear, though, that he's fully safe or that even the aides who have also tested positive and those even who've tested negative are on the clear. It's been less than two weeks since the event at the Rose Garden that seems to be at the center of this outbreak. To that point, how many people around the president or in the president's circle have contracted the virus that we know of? Well, if you look just within the White House, I think the numbers as of yesterday were 12, 13, maybe even more, depending on how you count. Obviously, there's high-level presidential aides from the president's wife to Stephen Miller, a senior advisor, to Hope Hicks, who's very close with the president. And of course, the press secretary, Kylie McEnany. There are also those more what you might call sort of permanent staff or support staff who appear to have tested positive from military valet, military aides, maybe even some housekeeping staff from some reports. The White House has not provided a full list of everybody who's been tested and what their results have shown. But a lot of White House aides are working remotely. Others are not, however, including Jared Kushner, Dan Scavino, the social media manager, the political director, and and several others who said they've tested negative. More broadly, of course, beyond the White House, uh, a number of the president's allies, both on Capitol Hill, and his campaign team, including the campaign manager, Bill Stepien, a couple of the Republican senators, Mike Lee and Tom Tillis, and Chris Christie, who helped the president with debate preparations last week, have all tested positive, and Christie's in the hospital. So the extent of this is not known. There were 150 or more people in the Rose Garden, and we don't know the full extent of the White House's effort to trace and contact these folks and to try to stem this virus. So given these circumstances, have we seen protocols or precautions at the White House evolve over the past few days? Has the president himself taken different protective measures? The White House says, for example, that the president, as he starts to get back to work here, is taking steps in that those who see him are in full protective gear. The chief of staff, Mark Meadows, said he was in the residence working with the president the other day and that when the president went to the Oval Office, that there was a cart full of protective gear, goggles, gloves, masks. Presumably the president, one would hope, is wearing masks. More broadly at the White House, there has been no mandated mask requirement up till now. And some portions of the White House are saying they are making them more mandatory, including the national security staff. But it seems like for the rest of the White House, it's still not fully mandatory. Is that disrupting the White House's ability to work at this moment? The outbreak has definitely affected their ability because they're not even at full staff in that, as I mentioned, some of the staff are there who've tested negative, but there's so many people who've tested positive and those people are quarantining. This is an important moment from the policy of the stimulus talks right now to try to help ordinary Americans and businesses and all that's bottled up on Capitol Hill right now to, of course, the president's re-election campaign to the idea, of course, that there could be foreign influence in the election. And you have well beyond now the White House at the Pentagon, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who were involved in a White House event about 10 days ago, have also quarantined because one of the commandants has tested positive. I think a second has more recently. This is a real alarming situation because even folks like Bill Barr at the Attorney General have been potentially exposed. He was at the Rose Garden event, and there are questions about whether he will fully quarantine or not. So to talk a little bit more about the president's health specifically, is the president required to disclose the details of his health condition with the public? 
No, I mean, like, like many things for the president, what had been sort of accepted norms and customs about disclosure and openness, President Trump has exposed as nothing more maybe than tradition or, or best practices. I think other White Houses have been uh, pressured to do so, and they have released uh, significant information about the president's physicals each year. President Trump has done some of that, but he's been less open, and I think he believes that it, it won't hurt him politically. I think there's a lot of idea that, obviously, it's important for the public to know, but President Trump has sort of made clear that he doesn't abide by all these norms or customs, and that if it's not someone going to force him to do it, he won't do it. And I think, ultimately, past presidents may have felt it was in the public good, and they were willing to do it, but also felt it could hurt them politically if they don't. And I think this president feels like, if it does, that's fine, but he doesn't feel like it's going to hurt him. And you're speaking mostly about modern presidents. Of course, historically, we've seen presidents be much less forthcoming about disclosing their health information, right? These are standards that have come more regularly. You've had presidents in the past, Franklin, Roosevelt, and others. I think Woodrow Wilson was infected with the flu over 100 years ago in a similar kind of broad pandemic uh, and tried to keep it from the public. But more recently, there's been a real push from lawmakers and, and journalists to get the up, most up-to-date status of the president. And right now, there are really questions about how well this president is doing, even as he tries to project this sort of robust and virile image that he's back to work already. What about from a national security perspective? Is there an argument to be made that it's better to protect adversaries from knowing the details of a president's condition? Yeah, you've seen the Robert O'Brien, the national security advisor, out on the interview circuit the last few days telling the media that the president's doing great and that there's no threat to his safety. There's been no talk, according to O'Brien, of potential transfer of power to Vice President Pence, even when President Trump was in the hospital. According to O'Brien, they're not discussing that. And I think that message is telling adversaries around the world, don't take advantage of this moment. You know, there's been some reports that the idea that China, other countries might try to take advantage of the United States at this moment because of the uncertainty because of the chaos. And so I think that from all indications, uh, the national security staff seems clear that they're trying to monitor that more closely. But as I mentioned with the Pentagon leadership right now quarantining, it is a little bit uh, of an uneasy moment for the United States. We now know from Washington Post reporting that Walter Reed's staff were actually required to sign non-disclosure agreements during Trump's November visit. We don't yet know if that was required for his recent visit to Walter Reed, but it does add insight into the complicated position that the president's doctors are put in when treating him. So where do doctors' obligations lie? To the American public, to the patient, to the president? It seems like that ultimately, like ordinary individuals, the doctor's foremost responsibility is to the patient. And the doctors spoke very carefully at Walter Reed in the sense that they seem to not want to tread on President Trump's privacy. They did cite reasons that they didn't want to answer certain questions, but they also seem to be willing to speak in a way that went to the president's political needs in some ways. They didn't say that as explicitly, but these are military physicians. The chief doctor, Sean Connolly, who's the White House doctor, is a military doctor, as they all have been. But he did seem to be suggesting at one point that when he was talking to the press, he was trying to be really upbeat and answered questions in a way that he was saying was trying to have a positive outlook rather than maybe as clearly leveling with the public about where the president was. And it's not clear whether, you know, maybe the president seemed to be shaping that messaging from behind the scenes. It just hasn't been uh, a real confident projection from them in a way that really can help the public feel like they really know what's happening. 
One piece of this that I've been wondering about is the responsibilities of the people around the president to keep him safe, even when it means keeping him safe sort of from himself. So if it's the Secret Service's job, for example, to protect him from harm, then how much power does the Secret Service have to force the president to take proper COVID precautions? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and actually, March, I just went back and looked at a story I wrote then around the time that Biden was starting to get Secret Service protection and around the time that the virus was really spreading through the country and the shutdowns were beginning. And I, you know, what I wrote back then was that I talked to Secret Service agents and I said, hey, you know, the president just got off the plane and he went to a rope line. He started shaking hands with the public. And this was a time when the virus was now beginning to be a real issue in the country and was affecting people. And he and these agents said, you know, the Secret Service, of course, does a risk assessment and they work with the White House Medical Unit. They work with with his staff and the White House Operations Division that stages events to try to find ways to make sure the president's safe. Usually that means safe from some sort of attack. You know, the president rides around with a big motorcade full of armed officers, and they set barriers up, of course, to protect him. And even, you know, chemical attacks as well. The president's limo is hermetically sealed to ensure that gases cannot get in there and affect the president. This was a different situation, though. The president wanted to interact with his supporters in typical ways, and he still wasn't doing that. And these agents said as much as they may make recommendations, ultimately, it's your principal, in this case, the president, who has the final say. And especially when the president wants to do something, you can't stop them. You know, other situations I've seen where, of course, the the military makes the call and the Secret Service goes along when the president's helicopter can't fly because of bad weather. I had not seen a case that I know of where the president's overridden that and said, no, we want to fly. The president wanted to go to the border of North Korea in 2017 when he visited South Korea. His helicopter was grounded. It took off and had to turn back because of bad weather. uh, And they didn't get to make the trip. And as much as the president might have wanted to, he had to listen to the military and the Secret Service in that case. But in this case, the president just has overridden any kind of advice he may have gotten. The, the Secret Service hasn't spoken out about what they've done or not done. But the president clearly has overridden that both in crowds. He continues to do these rallies we've seen, large rallies, very little social distancing. He had the RNC speech at the White House in August with over a thousand guests seated right there on the South Lawn. Aides are not wearing masks. And it now coming out in some reporting that the president, despite what the White House had said, is not getting a test every day for coronavirus. AIDS may have been, but the president himself was not. And how he got the virus, we don't know, but he may have ultimately spread it. We, we just don't know. Do you have a sense of the preparedness level of this administration when it comes to a potential emergency transfer of power? Has the Trump administration prepared for continuity of government? I've talked to folks who worked at the Trump National Security Council, and they said that they do drills and they have done drills regularly. They don't do them often, but they do them, I was told, uh, a couple times a year, sometimes more significant ones where they even take national security advisors off campus to a secure location and do drills about if there was an attack on the president, if he was incapacitated, if he was somehow put out of communication, what would happen? And they loop in congressional offices because, of course, the third in command is the Speaker of the House after the vice president. They loop in the vice president's office. So they do those kind of drills. This advisor, though, said that typically those are unexpected flash events where there's an attack of some sort and something happens immediately. And that this sort of drawn out idea that the president could be in in the middle of some sort of illness that extends over a long period, and it's not clear where the boundary is of being incapacitated, that is a little trickier. Because as we saw, this White House has said there's been no planning at all that the president would sign over power to Vice President Pence in this particular past week or so. So the White House is saying there's no immediate planning on that. We do know, like I said, though, that the National Security Council and others have done drills more broadly about how to maintain power as constitutional regulations. And others said that even I asked the question about this moment of such a stark divide between Democrats and Republicans in this White House, what would happen if 
if Nancy Pelosi had to be looped into talks, would there be potentials of not sharing information? These folks said there's constitutional requirements, and to them, that's going to carry the day and that there would be ultimately a sharing of information and, and some sort of effort to make sure that transition works. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. The events of the past week have raised questions about the way our government's leadership works when the president is faced with a health challenge. A big piece of that conversation comes down to the details in our Constitution's 25th Amendment, which lays out how transfers of power work. Even though this amendment hasn't been used in regards to the president's COVID diagnosis, understanding how it works in case of emergency is important. So to learn more, I turn to someone who knows a lot about the 25th Amendment. My name is Brian Kalt. I'm a law professor at Michigan State University and the author of Unable, The Law, Politics, and Limits of Section 4 of the 25th Amendment. I asked Brian to explain what's in the law. What's the purpose of the 25th Amendment? So the original Constitution made it crystal clear that if the president is gone, uh, including if he's um, suffering some sort of incapacity, that the vice president takes over. But the Constitution didn't provide any standards or any process for that transfer of power. So we had all of these situations where the president was incapacitated, but no one knew quite what to do. And so the vice president didn't take over and we had no one at the helm. So the 25th Amendment is designed to fill in those gaps and to make it clear not just that the vice president takes over, but how the vice president takes over. And also to make clear that if the president recovers, that he takes his power back, which was not clear before. Okay, so there are four sections in this amendment. Can you lay out the basics of sections one and two, which are pretty straightforward? Section one just says that if the president is gone, dead, resigned, removed, that the vice president becomes president, not just acting president. And that's a technicality that it's not too important, but it was sort of up in the air. We'd been acting as if that were how it worked, and this sort of formalized it. Section two says that if the vice presidency is vacant, that instead of remaining vacant, as was the case for many years over the first 180-odd years of the country, the president could nominate a new one. So the president would name a new vice president, and then if a majority of the House and a majority of the Senate approved, then that person would become vice president. So then Section 3 is where things start to get a little bit more complicated. What does Section 3 say? So Section 3 and 4 are about presidential incapacity. And Section 3 is the way ideally that it would work, which is the president says, I am unable to discharge the powers and duties of my office, makes an official declaration of that, sends it to the Speaker of the House, to the President pro tem of the Senate. And as soon as he sends that, the vice president becomes acting president. And then the president says, when he's better, he says, okay, I'm now able again. He immediately takes power back. So it's completely under the president's control. So no one else um, can make the decision except for the president under Section 3. 
under Section 3, it's just him. And he has an incentive to do that because then he takes power right back whenever he says so. And so this one has been used three times, once by President Reagan when he had surgery for about eight hours, and then twice by George W. Bush when he had to be sedated for colonoscopies. So just to understand, is that required if the president has a procedure or goes under general anesthesia? Is it required for the president to hand over power for that interim time? Or does he have to use his own discretion and make that decision each time? It's totally up to him. It's not automatic. And so we've had other situations where the president probably should have invoked Section 3 when President Reagan was shot. He was under general anesthesia for hours, and he was completely out of it for a while after that. He definitely should have invoked Section 3. but. If he doesn't do it, he doesn't do it. And there's no penalty, at least in the law, for not doing it. No, there's no penalty. There's no consequence other than political. And usually they're worried about the political cost of seeming weak or admitting that they're not totally in control. So politically, there's some conflicting impulses there. But there is also Section 4. So the president might want to use Section 3 to avoid having to use Section 4. So tell me what's in Section 4. What does it say? Section 4 is when the president can't or won't invoke Section 3, but he is incapacitated. And so the vice president and a majority of the cabinet can declare that the president is unable. And when they make that declaration, the vice president immediately becomes acting president. And here, the president can take power back. But unlike Section 3, where he takes power back immediately when he says he's okay, here it has to go through a process. So he has to wait for up to four days while the vice president and cabinet decide whether they agree that he's better. And if they don't, if they think he's still incapacitated, then it goes to Congress. Now, the deck is stacked pretty heavily in the president's favor. So it's only if the vice president and the cabinet and then two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate agree that he's incapacitated, that he's unable, that the vice president stays in charge. Otherwise, the president takes power back. But even if all of those ducks are in a row and they keep the president sidelined, he can keep trying to come back. So it's not like he's removed from office or anything. So really, Section 4 is about if the president's unconscious, he can't do Section 3 because he can't do anything. He's unconscious. This provides for a swift, certain transfer of power. Anything other than that, it protects the president. It makes it really hard to remove his power if he's saying that he's okay. So the intention was really if the president was fully incapacitated, not if the president was deemed mentally unfit, which I know has come up a lot, right, in the case of this particular amendment. The bar is pretty high. You could say it's any time that the vice president and cabinet and two-thirds in Congress say that he's unfit, but that's not going to happen very often. These are people who are, they're his team, they're his side, not people who already want him gone. So it really is about incapacity. It's not about being impaired. It's not about being unfit. It's about really not being able to do much of anything at all. Now, Theoretically, someone could be completely bonkers. You would want to step in in that instance, too, even though they're able to say, I'm just fine. But it's only in extremely clear situations, situations where even his people agree that he is functionally incapacitated. Is there any formal criteria for assessing whether a president is incapacitated or fit or capable, or is it subjective based on the judgment of the people around him? It's totally based on their judgment. So the authors of the 25th Amendment decided rather than try to draw the lines all in advance for what counts as unable and what doesn't, instead of doing that, they would designate who the decision makers are and what the process would be. And so you can say unable means whatever 
the vice president, the cabinet, and two-thirds in Congress agree it is, or alternatively, whatever the president says it is. But again, that's going to be a political decision. It's not really a medical decision. It's a political decision. If the president is impaired, maybe even severely impaired, but nothing much bad is happening as a result, they're probably not going to use Section 4. It's only if things get pretty extreme and at the same time, significantly bad things are happening that they would move in that direction. They have impeachment. If he's doing bad things, they can impeach him. That's a lot easier and more permanent. Has Section 4 ever been used before? No, it's never been used. It's the only part of the amendment that's never been used, which is funny because people say, oh, they should use the 25th Amendment on him. They use the 25th Amendment as shorthand for the only part of it that's never been used. You've talked a little bit about the fact that the vice president, the cabinet, and two-thirds of Congress need to agree. What happens if there is discord among them? What is that process like to reconcile that disagreement? So formally speaking, when the president says he's fine and the vice president and cabinet disagree, when we say it goes to Congress, this means, first of all, if they're not in session, they have to reconvene within two days. And then they have 21 days. And so if they don't do anything within 21 days and the president gets his power back, they would debate and eventually vote. And the awkward thing about it is, what if the president forces this vote in Congress and they don't get two thirds, but there's a strong majority, right? There's two thirds minus one in the House and in the Senate. It would sort of amount to a vote of no confidence because his own cabinet, his his vice president, and then most of Congress would have said that they don't think that he's able, that would put a lot of pressure on the president to, if not resign or invoke Section 3, to at least take seriously the notion that maybe he needs to do something medically or psychologically or whatever it is. So to some degree, that process protects the power from being, let's say, abused by a vice president or others looking to remove a president or gain power themselves. But it could also sort of work against a president if the consensus appears to be that most of these parties agree the president should not be serving. Yes. And all of this is through the lens of politics, right? I mean, if the president can't be effective politically, then nothing much else really matters. And if he has that many people in Congress saying he should be gone, then that's going to be a real problem that he needs to take seriously. At the same time, though, we have to presume that if the president is engaged in a fight like this, he might not be thinking logically, might not be thinking clearly. So we can't just say, oh, well, we have a president who's making rational calculations about all of this. If he were, maybe he wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. And the framers of the amendment recognized that too. But again, they set that bar really high. They erred in favor of the president at almost every step. So if any part of this process is underway, does the public ever have to know about it? Of course, by the time it gets to Congress, I assume the public would know. But is there anything in the law that requires this process to be made public at a specific point? Not exactly. There is room for a fair amount of secrecy here. By requiring that the declarations of inability go to the Speaker and to the President pro tem of the Senate, that makes it public. The Speaker and the President pro tem could keep it under wraps if they wanted, I suppose, but it would be hard and it would also be undesirable. At the same time, though, there might be reasons. It might be particularly sensitive information. We might not want people to know that. And so we do sometimes find things out only after the fact. I transferred power. I took it back at this time. But maybe we don't want to broadcast to our nation's enemies that we're in this vulnerable state right then. So you can see why they might want to obscure things a little. And it is theoretically possible to do this in a secret way, but it would be 
pretty undesirable in most cases. So I want to understand all of this in the context of the moment that we're in. You mentioned earlier that when Reagan was shot in 1981, the 25th Amendment was not used, but you suggested that perhaps it should have been, and other authors of the amendment have also suggested that it should have been used at that time. This moment that we have just seen, where the president was hospitalized for coronavirus, would that be a similar situation where the 25th Amendment, either Section 3 invoked by the president himself or Section 4 by those around him, should have been invoked and and wasn't? Well, I think some of the things we've heard about the medication that the president's on are concerning, but I don't think you can compare it to the situation when Reagan was shot. Reagan was unconscious being operated on for hours and then suffering. He'd lost almost half of his blood volume. He would have died if he hadn't made it to the hospital a couple minutes later. And he was basically completely incapacitated for a good long while after that. It's not about impairment and how impaired he was. He was incapacitated. So I think you can debate the current situation, but I think the situation with Reagan was much more extreme. Perhaps learning from that later on when he had cancer surgery on his colon, he did invoke Section 3 on that occasion. And it was just recognized that what had happened before was a mistake and that they shouldn't repeat that mistake. Brian, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? For reporting and updates on the president's health, visit WashingtonPost.com. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Arjun Singh and Ariel Plotnik with logo art from Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL.